Hey everyone, this is Jason, and welcome to the Bold Moves Only podcast. Something amazing has happened pretty recently, and that is athletes are really starting to use their platform to fight for social justice, and they're not being ostracized for it, which has not always been the case. My guest for today's episode is two-time NBA champion with the Chicago Bulls, Craig Hodges, who was ultimately blackballed from the league for speaking out on what he believed in. He is definitely not alone on the list of athletes who paid the price for standing up for what's right. Look at Colin Kaepernick, who still doesn't have a job despite half the quarterbacks in the league being just terrible. Craig has a very interesting and unique perspective, and I'm really glad I have the opportunity to share this episode with you. So let's just get into it. Hey, Craig, thanks for joining the Bold Moves Only podcast. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for the opportunity as always, man. We, we're here during this crazy time. Just thank God for another day and, and that we can do something on the positive, man. So can you talk a bit about your upbringing? Because I would say that you had a different experience than most and that your family was very encouraging of you to speak out against injustice from an early age. Yeah, you know, born in Chicago Heights, Illinois in 1960, it was right at the height of, you know, the, the civil rights movement, the movement for voter registration, for voter rights and housing and redlining and all of that. And and my family, my mom was a secretary for the civil rights organization and my granddad was a union organizer. So right from the beginning, man, for me, I saw community service in live and in living color. So I tell people... You know, my mom was Angela Davis. To me, I thought was big as Angela Davis. And so I had it at the crib. So for me, it was right there and live and in color. And as you get older, you see where you fit into it and what what can you bring to the table and as far as solutions are concerned. And that's been that's been what my life has been inspired to do, man. And and sometimes when you look back and you see how your steps have been guided, a lot of times it wasn't you, but it was a spiritual thing. So. I just thank God for blessing me with the support base that I've had, starting with my family and then, you know, the coaches and teachers that I've had throughout my life that have helped me realize what my potential could be on the planet. And so after the 91 championship, the Bulls were invited to the White House by then President George H.W. Bush. And you wrote an eight page letter to President Bush about the discrimination in America and what the administration should be doing for black communities. And it kind of came full circle as from a young age, you were writing letters to elected officials, directing attention to important problems. And now you were given this amazing opportunity to hand deliver a letter to arguably the most powerful person in the world. What did that experience mean to you? And, you know, when I look back at it, uh, at the time that I wrote the letter, I was just in the spirit of it. And then, you know, later on in life, you see the magnitude of it. At the time, it was it was a necessary opportunity that I had, you know, compared to someone else in my family who wouldn't get a chance to go, compared to my mother who marched with Dr. King at the March on Washington in 63. So it's one of those things, man, where for me, it was a blessing to get a chance to do. And the day that it happened, it was so it was everything was laid out perfectly, man. And as far as it was just a real cool day. And, and to know that I was 
I was represented in the right way on behalf of not only black people, but people who have been disenfranchised, poor people. And that's what the letter, that's what the letter was skewed to, not just uh, about black people. And did you receive any kind of backlash for doing that? Well, not right away, but uh, the following season, I was uh, basically blacklisted from the league. I couldn't get an agent to represent me. My union didn't have anything um, to do with helping me get a contract. And in fact, my union told me that I needed to find a team that a, that a team owed a favor to an agent. So that agent could help me let the teams know that I'm not a bad guy, whatever that meant. So, you know, for me, it was just a, a eye-opening experience, but a reality that this has happened in the past to people, you know, John Carlos, Tommy Smith in the 1968 Olympics, who look at, you know, Muhammad Ali. You know, there have been players who have been, you know, whose careers have been shortened because of the stance that they've taken towards the people. And just for the record, ultimately, you ended up going to Italy, right? And then you balled out. Yeah, I went to I went to Italy um, and had a you know had had good good time. In fact, that was one of my you know great experience in basketball. But I was going over there to show the NBA that was, that I was still capable of playing. Uh, averaged about thirty a game and came back and still couldn't get an opportunity. And at that point in time, I knew that it was time for me to take a different approach and where my life was going. That no longer was I a professional basketball player, but now. I wanted to give as much of this information about the game to other players and younger players. So I coached at Chicago State and, you know, from that point on, had a chance to just work with Tex and, and field again with the Lakers. And just my basketball took on a different role. Now I became more of a mentorship. And you also tried to instigate a boycott and protest game one of the 1991 NBA Finals, but you were immediately shot down from Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson. Can you take us through that a bit and also explain what you think could have been possible if we had seen two of the best teams with two of the best players to ever play the game of basketball sit that game out in protest? Yeah, you know, that, that for me, it was almost a no-brainer. Uh, I knew that they would reject me, but at the same time, I had to, I had to ask. It's the same thing like me writing a letter to, to the president is that I know you may not be able to solve the issues within, contained within the letter, but I have to raise them. And it was the same thing then that, you know, we were talking about, like we are now, black ownership, black general managers, black coaches, uh, black, um, you know, business people and executive suites across the league. And Magic and Michael were the top two players, not only in, in basketball, but I think when we look at notoriety across the world at that period of time, they were two of the high, probably most visible athletes on the planet. So I felt like you know, we could really have some impact in, you know, what could happen if we took a, you know, similar to Tyler Collin taking a knee or, you know, us taking a stance that we're not going to play and see what the owners will do. But both Magic and Michael said that was a bit too extreme for their liking, I guess. And then what were your reactions when you saw the Milwaukee Bucks actually sit out and protest the shooting of Jacob Blake and right after the rest of the NBA and teams from other leagues doing the same thing? Yeah, I think, you know, with um you know, with the advent of social media, I think the world is more connected. And the world is more connected on a lot of different levels, man. And that people are able to see the pain and suffering of um uh, not just your own community but internationally. And that being the case, I think the the players from the Bucks 
took a courageous position, man, and I applaud him for it. And it may have had some impact in them being eliminated from the playoffs even because, you know, your energy can be – you got to be totally focused when you're going after championship. And if, and this type of uh, emotional baggage can be hard on you, man. So it was one of those things I felt – I still feel happy that they took the stance and the fact that they were leaders in it is something great. And for, you know, the different – whether it be uh, Naomi Osaka, the tennis player, or, or whether it be, you know, NFL, Major League Baseball. I think now across the board, people are seeing oppression for what oppression is. I mean, I have, I've even seen it in surfing. So <laughs> it kind of seems like athletes are really able to control the narrative right now. So how should they proceed so that it doesn't die down and that they keep this power? Well, I think we have to we have to continue to um, hammer at the tenets of you know white supremacy racism. I think uh, the the jackhammer to the foundation of it is when you know George Floyd was killed and we the brothers sat down and and then they decided to go back and play. But I think right now we have to continue to keep pressure on both the owners uh, of not just basketball, football, baseball, but owners across you know, multi-conglomerate across the board, whether it be Clorox or whether it be, you know, uh, the movie uh, scene or whatever, man. Everybody has a role to play. And I think it's not just about black people standing up, but I think it's about right people of right minds standing together and being able to build coalitions that cross nationalities, cross races and ethnicities. And I think we're able to do that now with the advent of social media. And why is this burden of fighting for these issues seemingly to be put on the shoulders of athletes and entertainers when it should be the responsibility of people who hold a higher office? Well, I think, you know, a lot of times to whom much is given, much is required. And I think that happens on whether it be a billionaire who is black with no visibility and working in a some type of architectural business. I think he has just as much role to play and that that burden is is required. Likewise, I think the burden of having the visibility that we have as athletes and entertainers, that we're able to magnify the problem as well as the solution. And I think that's why part and parcel is often, you know, saddled on us to be able to speak to it, saddled on us to do something about it. And not oftentimes are we prepared or have we studied these issues to be able to speak to them forthrightly. And that, that has always been my position is that too much is given, much is required. But it's not on me to say when you give and when it's required for you to give. But hopefully I can shed enough light on the situations that you can see where you can fit into it comfortably. And how can players improve on fighting for social justice? Like, I'm just curious, if you were to be playing in the league right now, what are some of the things that you would be doing? Well, I would, the, the number one thing I would be doing, I, I definitely wouldn't be playing right now. I would be working on making sure that the NBA, as well as the Players Association, work with on an economic vehicle that can create jobs. And I feel like part of the economic vehicle is that making the owners invest in black banks, who can invest in black communities, who can invest in local communities, who can invest in local infrastructure. So a lot of the things that are necessary have to be not only discussed but have to be put into have to be implemented and i think that's something where we could be more 
critical thinkers and from that standpoint and that you know I, I feel like when we're 85 to 90 percent of the NBA that I speak of I feel like if we sit down for two or three months the impact of that will be felt and negotiations will be made and then maybe we can change the dynamic of a wall white ownership to a dynamic where the ownership is reflective of the demographic on the court yeah, it's pretty interesting. I actually saw, I know that there's a few WNBA players who decided to sit the season out. Not any NBA players, but WNBA players. Right. And that's that's a courage to me. And, I, you know, women, especially in our community, man, women have always taken a, a vanguard and forefront position, uh, irrespective of the challenges or the um, ramifications. And they, they throw caution to the wind and I always applaud them, man. So I applaud the sisters who set set out knowing that, you know, it's a game that they love playing like the brothers love playing, but they see that it's a bigger issue than playing basketball. And in your book, in reference to you and your kids not being allowed in the gym of Tim Grover, Michael Jordan's trainer, you say that if ever those boys were going to take a stand in this world, they would have come to terms with the isolation and consequences that follow those who challenge power they would be stronger for this experience. So my question is, what is the best way to handle that potential isolation and carry those consequences with you, knowing that maybe things could be different if you just don't say anything? Yeah, and, and for me, it, like you say, man, it was a cultural imperative how I grew up that I got to say something. But at the same time, when it goes down, I think for me, I hunkered down in my family. You know, my family has always been a great support base for me. And, and that my sons were almost teenagers at that time. So I got in, they, they helped me along so much and that we could sit down, we could talk, I could go in the gym and I could work out with them when I wasn't in the NBA. So it was a, it was a great opportunity for me to learn about myself as well as to be able to grow with my sons and, and, and them able to see the realities of uh, this whole political and capitalistic situation called white supremacy racism. And so also, I played college baseball for three years. I played for three different schools and teams. I played for too many teams to even count throughout high school. And honestly, there were some pretty toxic environments. Not all of them, but with some, there, were, there was pretty rampant racism, sexism, homophobia from the coaches to the players. And I personally regret not speaking up more for what I believe in. I mean, I refused to play along. I wouldn't laugh and pretend that I was okay with it, but... Let's say that we were having this conversation a few years ago when I was still playing. What advice would you have given me? Um, be courageous on your position and study your position to the point that it gives you so much confidence to speak about it. That, you know, if you see it and you, you can speak to it, speak to those issues, man. I was blessed to have had uh, the study of African people, the study of, of history of African-American people and the history of black people. So I had that in me. So when those issues would come up like Rodney King, it wasn't uh, a matter of being afraid or a matter, it would just come out. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so many times, it, and a lot of people like will look at me in shock, but hey man, you see, you see the same thing I'm saying. In them same situations where you're saying people aren't speaking about it, it's people sitting there as uncomfortable as you are. And that's so many times when bad and bullying type stuff is going on it's the insecurity of the person that's bringing it out anyway so it's those type of insecurities and um 
human frailties that have been able to be somewhat propagated as strength in a lot of times that it ain't it ain't strength that you can bully somebody and we have somebody in power now that's the ultimate bully and it's just been going on so you know stand on your truth and stand on and I you know I think passion has so much to do with it if you're passionate about something you're gonna speak on it and if you if you're passionate you're gonna study it so you're able to be confident in your stance because it's a passion and you studied it yeah, I actually do remember like one particular moment where, you know, I'm in the clubhouse, there's 40 plus guys in there and something happened and I could see, I could see like two to three people that were extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's just kind of hard when you know, 90, 95% of the team is just putting you up against the wall. Yeah, and then, you know, it's one of those things where, uh, hey man. The truth is a road, you know, truth and freedom is a road seldom traveled by the multitude. So you're going to be walking three going against 90, one going against 101 and not and knowing that, hey, y'all going that way. I think I'm going. It's my choice to walk this direction. And I stand on the way that I'm walking. So the whole flow is going the other direction. So be it. But I know that I'm firmly rooted in these principles, man. Yeah, honestly, sometimes I wish I was still playing simply just, you know, so I could have that platform, but... The platform that you got is awesome, so keep on building on it. Thank you. Um, so this may be a bit random, but what was it like to not only be personally invited to one of Nelson Mandela's events, but having him request to sit right next to you and know all about your career and political activity? Well, it was... It was um... A surprising shock, <laughs> to say the least. That you know, for me watching uh, Brother Mandela from college and studying him in college with some professors at Long Beach State who were South African and who taught us about you know what it was like to be in South Africa, and then to actually get a chance years later to actually sit down with him and he looked at me and like. Man, I'm sitting by Craig Hines. I'm like, man, I'm sitting there. I'm like, he's like, yeah, we watch basketball, you know, and we see what you did and how much you love our people. So, yeah, I wanted to meet you. I was like, brother, this is overwhelming. So it was, it, I've been blessed, brother. I've been blessed to meet a lot of the people that I grew up in awe of and been able to sit with them and conversate with them and draw draw a little bit of life energy and and sustenance should we say. Do you have any other moments like that with people that you grew up idolizing that you ended up getting the opportunity? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, you know, to watch him when I was a little boy and then to get to play against him, then to get to coach with him on the Lakers staff, man, that's off the chain, off the chain. I mean, literally off the chain for me. So I've been blessed like that, man. I don't, I don't, I'll never question it. I just keep looking for it to happen. <laughs> so last question, something I ask everyone, what advice would you give to someone who really wants to make a positive impact, but doesn't know where to start? One of the things is like we just spoke about passion within that. I think when you look across the spectrum, it's going to be something that you see that strikes you. And when it strikes you, just stop. Stop and, and look at it, and the answers will come, man. 
when you stop and you look at it and then you may and see what the social media and the artificial intelligence of information gathering that it is today that you can stop and look at it and then within 15 seconds you can have maybe 10 or 15 ideas about what to do about a different issue so i would just say you know take your time find whatever your passion is hopefully you can find it early and you have it by now i was blessed to have my passion at six years old and knowing that i was going to be an athlete but not knowing that i was going to be a world champion but my granddad told me that I was going to be an athlete. And that was all about my aunts and my sister putting the educational portion into me. But, man, it's just being able to and have no doubt about what you want to do. That once you end something, you may set goals for yourself. And like you said, 90% of the planet may say, ah, that's garbage. But if you feel it and you know it, go after it, regardless to what somebody else may be saying or, or negating in it. Hell yeah. And who's winning the NBA championship? Man. (laughs) Brother, you know what's so crazy, brother, is that I have watched maybe 10 minutes of that stuff, man. And it's so, it's hard for me to watch because it almost looked like a video game to me. And I've never played video games. So when I look at it, it's not, it doesn't seem real. So I would say probably L.A. from the way that they want things to work. L.A. of any kind, L.A. Clippers or L.A. Lakers, the league will be happy. (laughs) You follow me? Yeah. I'm sure it should be. It'll be the Lakers. And are you saying, are you talking about the NBA in general or the bubble? Both. (laughs) It's all the same, man. You know, it's all the same to me when you look at it. You know, and that's what's so crazy now is 60. You know, I used to have to try to question things and then you you put down your your clip your little footnotes and try to make sure you check all the boxes and be like yep i got it right man this is so easy to see man just on just on a clear nobody should be playing any sport right now we should be healing people that's what we should be doing that's what we should be. if anybody should be playing sports it should be amateurs that's who it should be and in a totally safeguarded situation but this whole thing about nba and all man it's it's a it's a game and it's a game to keep us trapped in this mental bondage but you don't think that you know this bubble has created an opportunity for them to kind of increase their platform at this very moment well i you know and, and like i said i i'm with it if it does I haven't seen where it's increased it. I haven't seen it. We're still every day a new murder's coming out. Every day something's coming out from two months ago, a month ago. This person was killed. This person was killed, and we still hooping. We got we have a message on our T-shirt. We have a message on the floor. Okay, but what is it translating into? day-to-day life, local to regional to state to national to international. They don't want us to stop and look at this thing on an equal footing basis. If it was white America, they would not, if, if Barack had an all-black cabinet and we had all-black police force, 
and we was killing white people like that. It would be an international issue, man. Come on. Come on, man. It is what it is, but it's changing. It's changing right now as we speak, brother. The fact that we're having this conversation is changing. Absolutely. I mean, it is kind of weird. I don't know if you saw the Chiefs uh, Texans opening game, but they were linking in um, unison and they were getting booed. And I and I was just like, oh my God, after all this, are you still booing? Holy, oh my God. Come on, man. And once again, like I said, in order to break this whole, because see, it's a mental bondage of white supremacy, racism too, that have white people. So they're worse than us in so many ways. Because they have, you hear Trump the other day tell, uh, he told somebody, oh, you drank the Kool-Aid. So it's a Kool-Aid the other way, too. It's a Kool-Aid that you accept wholeheartedly that Christopher Columbus discovered America, that the founding fathers were the greatest men on earth, even though they owned my grandfathers. Come on, man. I don't drink it up like that. And I'm not, I'm not going to consume a lie that is to keep people enslaved. No, that's not going, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Like I told you before, man, keep me posted. If you want to do it again, let me know, man. You know, you got in touch with my sons. You know what's happening, all right? Kill yourself, man. Okay, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I really want to emphasize the point that I am learning as much as you are by listening to these incredible guests who I have had the good fortune of speaking with. You know, I created this project to inspire bold action out of everyone, including myself, and talking to all my guests really fires me up, and I hope it does with you as well. Have an amazing rest of your day, and let's be bold.